On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenanai, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah, said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is of them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise, because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into the mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire, to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on them the way that they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, 
You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. And from heaven, you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. And then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned, from their, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you admonished them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention. So you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, O our God, the great, mighty and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us upon our kings, our leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so that we could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. 
We are in great distress. Well, thank you very much for that superb reading. Uh, really wonderful. Uh, we are going to be looking at a fair chunk uh, today. So you may want to um, just be just sit comfortably, you know, move around a little bit. We're looking at the, pretty much the, the whole of the back end of Nehemiah uh, this morning. That's just one of a number of chapters. So we are going to need the Lord's help. Before we do that, can I just say once again, it's a thrill to be here, great honor to be able to um, open the word of God uh, before you this morning. Let's pray together. It's a light and a hammer. It's a fire and a sword. It's the voice of our Father, the word of the Lord. The blade of a spirit can cut to the soul, and God will use it to make us whole. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that would be our experience this morning as we listen together and sit under your word. Would you make us whole to the glory of Jesus? Amen. Well, now let's uh, think for a moment. Uh, a leopard can't change its spots. Old habits die hard. Plus ça change. Same old, same old. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. And on they go. How many different ways can we find of saying the same thing that people don't really change? That any optimism you might have about personal growth, development, fresh starts, new resolutions, deep transformation in people is just wrong-headed. Seeing the world through rose-tinted spectacles, it's putting hope over experience. Because deep down, nobody really changes. A leopard cannot change its spots. That's the line anyway. What do you think? If you've lived long enough, you will understand, I'm sure, the cynicism that lies behind that. But as Bible-reading Christians, we do believe that God can turn lives around, don't we? Please say yes. In fact, I'm sure many of us have seen it for ourselves, sometimes quite dramatic change. Now, the effects don't always last, it's true, but if this passage that we're looking at this morning shows us anything, it's that lives can be turned around. Uh, yesterday at the Partnership Day, we were looking at the way the kingdom of God advances in Nehemiah 1 to 8. Uh, many of you were there, I, I, I know, but I'm guessing a good number weren't as well. So it, it, I wonder if it, perhaps before we dive in, it might be useful just to recap a bit and see if we can summarize the story so far. Now, the events described in Nehemiah are some of the very last pieces of action that you see in the whole Old Testament. You might not guess, guess that from you know, where it sits in the batting order uh, of, the, of, of the, our Bibles. But really the next thing to happen after, the, uh, after these events is the angel Gabriel turning up uh, a few months before the birth of Jesus. That's kind of where we are. 
This is the final act of Old Testament history. In terms of the story so far, well, the the book started with a, a focus on Nehemiah, the leader. Hearing of Jerusalem's miserable predicament, with its walls still lying in ruins, and and then responding to that reality. By the end of chapter 2, he's pondered a bit and prayed a bit. He's packed himself off to Jerusalem, taken a peek at the walls, and put the people to work in rebuilding those walls. In chapters 3 through to 6, we see them getting on with the construction work and doing it in very difficult conditions. He has lots to do, and there's the threat of attack and sabotage at every point. But by looking to God, by getting on with the work, and by standing together, they get the job done. After a quick roll call of the returnees in chapter 7, attention turns in chapter uh, to 8 to the all-important question of what's going to happen inside the walls, or at least where the direction is going to come from. And the answer being that inside those walls, the word of God is what's going to determine everything. And so they heard the word, they listened to it being read, they understood the word, they had it explained to them until they really got it. They learned to love the word. They had a big celebration, in fact. And finally, they began to live the world. They put the word, they, they put it into practice. Turned out there was another big festival they were meant to be having at the time. So they did celebrate that festival. But a big festival is, is one thing. As we start chapter 9 and our passage today, Uh, The question we're asking ourselves is, will this rediscovery of God's word really change their lives? Will it go deep down? Will it affect deep change? Will it get under their skin? Can a leopard really change its spots? Can you really teach an old dog new tricks? Well, let's have a look together. The first sign of the word doing its work in their lives is they start demonstrating what seems to be a brand new kind of humility. It's really quite striking. See how dramatically they signal the change. So verse 1, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. All the signs of real contrition are there, aren't they? And to see how deliberately they they identify as the people of God. So verse 2, those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They're owning not just their own personal failure, but their failures as as a whole people, aren't they? And see how exhaustively they acknowledge those shortcomings. Verse 3, they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And spent another quarter in confession and worshipping the Lord their God. What follows is a kind of spiritual history of Israel since the very beginning. 
And uh, by spiritual history, I mean not just the, the names and the, the dates and the places and so on, but the way in which God and the people of God have treated each other. Again and again, it turns out, the Israelites have treated their God with contempt. Look down at uh, verse 16, for example. After God has come to them and given himself to them and fed them and guided them, their response is what? But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. That's how they treated him. But God's response to them? But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Again and again through this chapter, you see that pattern. Israel spitting in God's face, as it were. But then God responding, not in kind, but with mercy. It's very different, isn't it, from the popular caricature of the God of the Old Testament. No, the the, the people provoke him again and again. But time and again, he does not rise to the bait. He's slow to judge. He's full of compassion grace. If you want the headline summary of this great long spiritual history, you'll see it down in verse 33. In all that's happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Here are God's people coming together and finally owning their wrongdoing before a consistently right-doing God. Self-awareness is something some people seem to be blessed with more than others. Isn't that true? Is that your experience? It does appear to take some people an awfully long time to see themselves as they really are. Well, it's been a long time coming for Israel. But the point is they're there now. This this new encounter they've had with the word of God has done the trick. It's got them to see the truth about themselves. So there's this wonderful new humility about them. It's quite challenging for us, isn't it? See, maybe this isn't fair, but it seems to me we just can't help but score ourselves against other people in some way. And we do that all the time. And the benchmark we, we, we find ourselves using to score ourselves by is, is, is what? Well, it is just the people around us. And not just any people, but people we know we're going to fare well against. People being people, you can always find others to cast yourself in a good light. But God's word tells it as it is. It's like those lateral flow tests that we we just had to sort of live by for all those months and years, last year, the year before, whatever it was. What they revealed about us may not have been a welcome truth, but it was, usually at least, the truth. And it needed to be owned, taken on board, responded to appropriately. Do you and I allow God's word to show us what we really are? who we really are. And if and when we do, do we allow ourselves 
to be humbled and to come before God in confession as these men and women here did. Sorry is such a hard word to say. It doesn't matter whether you're seven years old or you're 70 years old. It's always hard. But it's a word that needs to be said when we come to God. Actually, you know, why don't we just do that now? Take 30 seconds of quiet and come to God in the quietness of your own heart. Maybe just reflect a bit, own your wrongdoing or some wider wrongdoing that you you share in the responsibility for and humbly ask his forgiveness. Just close our eyes, take a moment and do that together. it's wonderful to have a gracious and forgiving God, isn't it? When we think about the sort of things where we've just been thinking about. Well, these people had changed. They demonstrated a new humility. But these Israelites, uh, in the days of Nehemiah, they didn't stop at that. They didn't stop at just beating themselves up about their past. They looked to the future as well. And they acted with a new resolve about the kind of people they were going to be in the future. See, true repentance involves more than just saying sorry. It means making changes. And in fact, being serious about those changes. So in the last verse of chapter 9, the people of God commit themselves to a new regime of God's word reshaping their lives from this day forward. Verse 38, do you see? We are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing. They all own it. It's signed by their leaders, starting, verse 1, with Nehemiah himself. He is the, the first to put his name to the pledge. He leads from the front. And in some ways, it's a very, very broad general commitment. Verse 28 of chapter 10 The rest of the people, uh, there are various listed there. Verse 29, uh, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. It's a general resolution. They're buying into whatever God's word dictates for them. But it also contains quite specific commitments. Commitments about family life and who's going to marry who. Verse 30, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Commitments about economic life. And restrictions on trading activities. Verse 31, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any other holy day. Every seventh year we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. And commitments about religious life. Worship and giving. Verse 32, We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of God. 
Uh, the duties are listed out, but the, the summaries down there at the bottom. will not neglect the house of our God. It's interesting, that pattern, isn't it? Even today, for disciples of Jesus, living as the people of God is like this. There is a general orientation, isn't there, to, to God's will. There is a new north to point the compass of our lives towards. We'll obey whatever God says. Jesus is now our king. We're following him. But there are also going to be very specific expressions of that new direction that we're taking. Worldview changes. Lifestyle changes. Changes in our ambitions and our priorities and our passions and our our daily decisions. And yes, those changes might well be linked to the kind of areas we see addressed here. Christians today aren't banned from marrying people from other countries or cultures. Far from it. But when it comes to marrying somebody who doesn't share our faith, well, it's hard to think of something more spiritually self-destructive than deliberately opening up our whole lives to somebody who very likely in the end will turn our hearts away from God. Christians today aren't required to observe the Sabbath day in the way the Israelites were. Colossians 2 verse 16, the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. But we are to work for the Lord. And we are to rest as our great creator God rested from his work. Workaholism is a trap to be avoided like the plague So dangerous to us and those around us. And Christians don't contribute to maintaining the institution of the temple anymore. God's dwelling places among his people in Christ. So in a sense, anyone joined to Christ is already in the Holy of Holies. But we still give to the work of the gospel, the good of fellow believers. We're still to be generous and sacrificial and intentional in sharing our resources different era, different regime, you might say, but still real changes to be affected in our lives and regularly reviewed family life, work life, personal life. There are resolutions to be made. There are ambitions to be questioned, desires to be retrained. There are idols to be identified and turned away from. New tricks to learn for an old dog, as you might put it. That applies every day. So perhaps, as we did before, maybe just another moment of quiet right now and see if there's any resolution that you want to make now before God, a change that you're determined to see take root in your life. If that's the case, just bring it to the Lord now in a few moments of quiet. Well, may the Lord uh, empower that change by his spirit in our lives. But there it is, a a new humility, 
and a new resolve. And there's still another change that the word of God brings to them. They discovered a new joy. I don't know what you make of that. Um, well, there's a number of them, aren't there, actually? There's great long lists of names in the book of Nehemiah. If you flip back to chapter 3, uh, you'll see um, the names of those who actually did the building work. There they are, recorded for posterity. Uh, the sheep gate builders, the fish gate builders, the Jishana gate builders, the valley gate builders, the dung gate builders. I bet that was fun, working at the dung gate for 52 days straight. And all those names listed out by each of those sections of the wall. Why? Why are they listed like this? Well, just imagine centuries later, a young man going to synagogue, hearing the Bible, and that young man turning to his dad saying, hey, did you hear that? That's our great, 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 great granddad, isn't it? We've, we've got our family name in the Bible. We're part of God's plans for history. I'm going to go home and tell mom and, and then the kids. That's the point, isn't it? There's another list in chapter 7. This one's um, actually just a republication of an earlier list uh, uh, from, um, from Ezra chapter 2, a cut and paste job. But still, you can imagine the same reaction centuries later. Look at that, Dad. We're in God's book. Our family. We're part of history. What a lovely assurance that must have been for so many. And now there's another of these lists in chapters 11 and 12. This time it's the new city's residents in this latest phase of Jerusalem's history. And yes, for us, it's maybe about as interesting as reading the telephone directory, uh, for those few of us who can still remember such a thing, or reading the periodic table or some endless spreadsheet of, I don't know, customer list or, or something like that. I mean, come on, verse 4 of chapter 11. Um, Athiah, son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Mahalel, a descendant of Perez, and Maaseiah, son of Baruch, the son of Colhazeh, the son of Keziah, the son of Adiah, the son of Jorib, the son of Zechariah, the descendant of Sheep. Are you asleep yet? <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> I almost am, I'm standing up. But, you know, we, I don't know about how it was up here in, um, in this part of the world. We had our council elections a few weeks ago. Did you have them at those, those here? Uh, and I, I went along. And I don't know how it is, but, but whenever I turn up at our local polling station, and, and, I, and I, um, you know, they, they check your name on the list, don't they? They look, check you off and, and see that you've, you haven't done it already, I guess. And I, I always look over, and I, I see my name there. And I get this kind of tingle of excitement. <laughs> look. That's me. My name's on the list. They've been waiting for me all day. <laughs> they want me to have my say. I've got a stake in this city. I've got a stake in this city. That's what this list is here in chapter 11. It's a reminder that God's people have a stake in his city of Jerusalem. Every one of them. Every individual name and their families, they are written into God's book for posterity. And here we are, thousands of years later, we're still reading them. 
And for Christian believers, I guess we can't help but think on to the, to the new Jerusalem that we hear about in Revelation 21 and the Lamb's Book of Life. A wonderful city there in the eternal new creation. Revelation 21, verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it, or no day will its gates ever be shut, for there'll be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21, 27. If, if you've come to Jesus and experienced the new birth of the Spirit of God, then this city is your birthright because your name is written in that book of life as clearly and as permanently as these names are here in Nehemiah 11 and 12. That wonderful city of God is yours and mine for the taking. Isn't that an amazing thought? I mean, how do you respond to that? Well, presumably, not too differently to the way the Israelites responded here. In the second half of chapter 12, there is the mother of all celebrations. Verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. It turns out there was a huge musical festival with not one choir but two, two enormous choirs, each with their own orchestra, all carefully choreographed, walking in opposite directions around the wall, then meeting up and going into the temple together. And then um, verse 42, the, the brass section joining in and then... Verse 43, the fireworks, that is, the sacrifices. It's it's quite a thing. But what's it all about? Verse 43, on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing, because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. You can't miss it, can you? The wall is done. The city is effectively refounded. Yes, it is God's city. It's therefore his glory. It's a light among the nations. But thanks to God, it's also their city. They are part of it. And so naturally, they rejoice. When we open the Bible, we find their clues not only about the kind of people we are and the kind of people God wants us to be, but the kind of people he's made us to be and taken action to make sure that we are. We are the redeemed people. We are justified people, chosen people, sanctified people, purified people, reconciled people, glorified people. We are God's field, God's 
building. We're adopted children of God. We're heirs of God in Christ. We are the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, citizens of heaven. And on it goes. That's what God's word tells us about what he's made us to be. And as I say, because we are those people, our name, every one of our names, is there in the book of life, guaranteeing our entrance into the new Jerusalem, giving us a stake in the great city. Whatever our circumstances in life, and I'm sure there are a number here in a a crowd this size for whom things are very difficult, but whatever our circumstances, how could we not be defined by joy? When we think of this, remember how uh, Peter puts it, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Behind the ups and downs of life lies this deep joy in God's people. And even if you're not yet a Christian, not yet owning the name of Jesus as the master of your life, that joy could yet Be yours if and when you give yourself over to the Lord Jesus. Start trusting in his name. Let him him reshape the person you are into the person he's made you to be. A new humility, a new resolve, a new joy. Change is possible. The leopard can change its spots. And all around this room, I take it, there are testimonies to that very reality. Lives that have been turned around. New starts that have been made. One person put it this way. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I should be. I'm not what I will be. But by the grace of God, I'm not what I was. Isn't that a lovely way of putting it? Let me say it again. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I should be. I'm not what I will be. But by the grace of God, I'm not what I was. I'm guessing many, many of us here in this room could say those exact words of ourselves. But there is just one uh, last question that does need to be asked. And that is, does this change actually last? And change may be real, but does it necessarily take? New starts can be made, but what about the finishes? It's a slightly awkward question to have to think about after dwelling on such a positive and uplifting set of themes that we've been seeing already. But we're forced to think about it because of the text of Nehemiah. See, I'd love to say that this book ends on a high. But I'm afraid it really doesn't. 
The last chapter, chapter 13, makes for depressing reading. After a trip back to Jerusalem, Nehemiah's returned, and to his horror, he finds when he gets back that all those things that they'd resolved to do differently have come unstuck. The temple is being misused and defiled. The Sabbath is being ignored. The ban on spiritual mixed marriages is being flouted left, right, and center. In a word, what he finds is, well, he calls it out, doesn't he? Verse 27, terrible wickedness. You see what I mean by depressing endings? And so we're forced to ask the question by the very text here, can change in the people of God be relied upon to take? Does it last? But it's not just the text that forces us to answer that question. It's our own experience. How many of us as Christian people know people who've started well in their Christian lives, but then backtracked, perhaps dropped out completely? So discouraging, isn't it? We have to ask the question, don't we? Will it last? And then again, we're forced to ask the question, not just because of the text here and because of the people we know, but because of what we see in the mirror. How many of us find ourselves looking at our own lives and wondering, why am I making so little progress? Why am I falling into the same sin again and again? It feels like I'm going backwards, not forwards. What's wrong with me? Ever wondered that? Most of us have many, many times, I would imagine. A real change may be possible, but will it last? Will it take? Will I last? Will I go the distance? Will I finish the race? The New Testament gives two separate kinds of answers to that question. One is assurance. We've had a whole stream of assurances. Of course we'll make it. We are new creations. We have a new driver, the Spirit of God. We have a heavenly inheritance that's marked out for us. God is committed to finishing what he started. Nobody can pluck us from his hands. And most wonderfully of all, we're now part of a family with God himself as our Father. You can't remove yourself from a family even if you try. Theologians usually call this stream of assurances the perseverance of the saints, which is just another way of saying every truly changed person will certainly make it to the finish line. How could they not, given the change in us is brought by God himself? But that's not the only kind of answer the New Testament gives. Will the change take? Will the new person that I am make it to the end? The other answer is in the form of a challenge. It's effectively this. Make sure you do. Make sure you do make it to the end. See, God's work in us is assuring to us. But those assurances are never to be taken as a disincentive to our own personal effort. Again and again, Paul would say to Christians, be what you are. You are now changed people in Christ. Now act like it. 
That is the basic structure of most of Paul's letters in the New Testament. Peter would say, yeah, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and, and to mutual affection love. Make every effort. There is effort involved in personal transformation and personal sustenance. It's often slow and grueling and frustrating, three steps forward and two back, or sometimes two steps forward and three back. It's hard work. You can never relax. If you're one of those people who goes to the airport and just stands on that moving elevator thing and, and, and lets it sort of get you to the end, you've got problems. <laughs> you, you, you really have. You've got to watch out. Because in the spiritual world, that strategy is not going to work well for you. Because you might find along the way, the elevator, it switches direction. It starts taking you backwards. You've got to be intentionally and deliberately moving forwards all the time if you're going to make it to the end. New Testament spirituality involves assurance, yes. But also personal effort. We may have all those things that we've read about in these chapters, a new humility, a new resolve, a new joy. We may be changed people, made a new start, been brought into the family of God. But that doesn't mean we don't care about actually pleasing God today. And so, uh, for example, for the writer of Hebrews, it's all about today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Today, today, what will you do today? Will you make sure the change that God has worked in you shows its face visibly in your life today? Will you fix your eyes on Jesus today? Will you throw off everything that hinders today? Will you run with perseverance the race that's marked out for you? When you let the Father down, will you return to him? When you muck up, will you confess to him? When you fail, will you, will you get up again and start running the race again? These are questions we have to ponder. And so as we close, I want to leave you with a challenge. And it's a challenge in the form of a kind of extended poem. It's a challenge to keep running the race. It's called simply The Race. Here it goes. Stand down. Give up. You're beaten. The tempter plants his seed. There's just too much against you now. This time you can't succeed. But as I start to hang my head in front of failure's face, my downward fall is broken by the memory of a race. And hope refills my weakened will as I recall that scene. For just the thought of that short race rejuvenates my being. A children's race, young boys, young men, how I remember well. Excitement, sure, but also fear it wasn't hard to tell. They all lined up so full of hope, each thought to win that race, or tie for first, or if not that, at least take second place. And fathers watched from off the side, each cheering for his son. 
And each boy hoped to show his dad that he would be the one. The whistle blew, and uh, off they went. Young hearts and hopes afire. To win and be the hero there was each young boy's desire. And one boy in particular, whose dad was in the crowd, was running near the lead and thought, my dad will be so proud. But as they sped on down the field across a shallow dip, the little boy who thought to win lost his step and slipped. Trying hard to catch himself, his arms flew out to brace and mid the laughter of the crowd, he fell flat on his face. So down he fell, and with him hope. He couldn't win it now. Embarrassed, sad, he only wished to disappear somehow. But as he fell, his dad stood up and showed his anxious face, which to the boy so clearly said, get up and win the race. He quickly rose and no damage done, behind a bit, that's all, and ran with all his mind and might to make up for his fall. So anxious to restore himself, to catch up and to win, his mind went faster than his legs. He slipped and fell again. He wished then he had quit before with only one disgrace. I'm hopeless as a runner now, I shouldn't try to race. But in the laughing crowd he searched and found his father's face. That steady look which said again, get up and win the race. So up he stood to try again. Ten yards behind the last. If I'm to close that gap, he thought, I've got to move so fast. Exerting everything he had. He gained, say, eight or ten. But trying so hard to catch the lead, he slipped and fell again. Defeat. He lay there silently. A tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense running anymore. Three strikes, I'm out. Why try? The will to rise had disappeared. All hope had fled away. So far behind, so error prone. A loser all the way. I've lost, so what's the use, he thought. I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, who soon he'd have to face. Get up, an echo sounded low. Get up and take your place. You were not meant for failure here. Get up and win the race. With borrowed will, get up, it said. You haven't lost at all, for winning is no more than this, to rise each time you fall. So up he stood to run once more and bid farewell to doubt. He just resolved that win or lose at least had not drop out. So far behind the others now, the most had ever been. Still he gave it all he had and ran as though to win. Three times the course had tripped him up, the three times it stood again. It took him all he had and yet he still ran to the end. They cheered the winning runner as he crossed the line, first place. Head high and proud and happy, no tripping, no disgrace. But when the falling youngster crossed the line last place, the crowd gave him the greater cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last with head bowed low, unproud, you would have thought he'd won the race to listen to the crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do too well. To me, you won, his father said. You rose each time you fell.
And now when Satan brings his lies to whisper in my face, the memory of that little boy helps me in my own race. For new creation though I am, I fail. Then I feel small. But all I have to do to win is rise each time I fall. Stand down, give up, you're beaten. See the sneer on Satan's face. But the father says, just take my hand. Get up and win the race. We're children of the king. We're living a new life. We've made a new start. Let's make sure we make it to the end. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to confess to you something of our own cynicism about the reality of change as we look around and see people not really changing very much. When we've found ourselves being suspicious or skeptical of the reality of change, even change among fellow believers, uh, we find ourselves rebuked by this chapter, by these chapters. And so please, Father, would you restore our confidence in the power of your spirit to remake your people? Would you give us the assurance that we need when we find ourselves so disappointed in ourselves, wondering whether we will make it to the finish line? We pray that whatever changes have been in our lives would not be reversed, but not also be the end that day by day as your spirit works in us to transform us and make us more like the Lord Jesus, make us bear the family resemblances of, of children of yours, that we would find ourselves growing, developing, looking more forward, looking more like Jesus. Keep us to the end, we pray. Help us in our race as we set about each day to please our Father. You give us the resources we need, the motivation we need. Keep our eyes on our heavenly inheritance, the loving face of you, our Father, and use those things to equip us to make it to the end. For the glory of Jesus. Amen.